Welcome to episode one of the new My Golf Spy Insider podcast. I am your host, Tony Covey. In our new format, we'll bring you deep inside the golf equipment industry and invite you to listen along to the types of conversations we have each and every week here at My Golf Spy. My guests will come primarily from inside the golf equipment industry, though it's possible we'll reach out and touch some other areas of this wonderfully infuriating game as well. Fair warning, we may go a little inside baseball, maybe into the weeds a bit from time to time, but you should probably have come to expect that from me by now anyway. We certainly hope you'll enjoy listening and you'll come away from each episode having learned something that will make you a smarter golfer and a smarter consumer. So with that, let's get to it. My guest today, uh, you've probably seen him in numerous videos going back a decade or so. He is, in many respects, the, the U.S. face of the Mizuno brand, at least as far as the gearhead is concerned. So on the phone with me today is Chris Vishal. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing awesome today, Tony. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, and I wanted to start by asking you a question that I get asked all the time in my job. And, and very simply, it's, it's how did you get into golf? You know, golf is one of those things I grew up playing, and it's it's always been a passion of mine. You know, I think we're similar in that, you know, you, you just love the game. And my whole story of getting into golf was, you know, I started playing when I was 11 years old. You know, I was pissed at my dad for signing me up to play in a junior clinic or something. And then I get there, and there's a couple friends of mine from my class who are there. So naturally, you know, as kids are, one thing leads to another, and all of a sudden you got some friends in, and it becomes a cool thing to do. So all I, I spent all the summers and basically any chance I got growing up from 11 on through high school just playing golf, you know, going out to the course, hitting balls, you know, getting there at sunrise and leaving at sunset. And then from the to actually getting into the golf industry was, you know, a step beyond that, just because my I was always like an equipment junkie, like my dad and I used to go over. It was a golf warehouse that was over in Atlanta that we used to go to every Saturday after we got McDonald's for breakfast and stuff. And we'd just go look at golf clubs. So that was where my passion for equipment came from. And then, you know, you go to school. You, I got an engineering degree and I, I was sat there with an engineering degree trying to decide what level of engineering am I going to do just because, man, you know, you go in thinking you're going to design awesome stuff, but then you get an engineering degree and you realize that the bulk of what engineers do really is not that fun. So I started reaching out everywhere, trying to figure out what my options were. And my timing worked out perfect where I reached out to Mizuno Golf. They had a posting for a club engineer position, which I realized is a rare posting to find online. But I reached out for that and you know, I get the disappointing email or phone call back that says you're underqualified for this. You know, it's basically it's not going to happen, but we're opening up a test center at the Country Club of the South in Atlanta. So I was actually asked if I wanted to interview for a position, basically running the robotic golfer, you know, cutting up clubs, buying competitor clubs and doing all that stuff. And that was my foot in the door at Mizuno. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if if people or our readers, listeners ever think about it consciously, but to my knowledge, there's no, there's no school for golf club design, right? You're right about that. I mean, it's, it's one of those uh, really specialized things where it's funny because my, my degree ended up working out perfect for what it was completely unintentionally where, you know, at, at, at Vanderbilt, where I was in school, I took a lot of, I took a lot of classes in materials. I took some CAD classes, some, you know, a bunch of physics, uh, a bunch of stuff that ultimately led up to a, a degree, 
that just made sense. It was an engineering science was the major, but, you know, it wasn't specialized in terms of, you know, I wasn't a civil engineer, electrical engineer, mechanical engineer. I was one of those broad stroke engineers. And really, when you enter into the golf market, everything that I had taken, all the classes I had taken lined up to work out perfect. So it was one of those fate things. I'm, we'll go with it was fate. So, so how long did it take you from, from going from running the robot and breaking other people's equipment to starting <laughs> to actually design some of it? You know, it's, it, was, uh, it took a little bit of time, which was a good thing. And that's part of what Mizuno does is they almost have set up like an apprenticeship program where when you, when you enter, the, enter the R&D team, you really are the guy who measures clubs, you know, basically – answers to all the engineers, does the stuff to really make sure you have a good foundation of everything. So when I started in 2004, that was my job, was cutting up clubs. Basically, it was a physics lab every day, five days a week. But from there, I was working close enough with the engineers that I think I'm passionate and I pushed enough saying, hey, I want to learn this. Why did you do this? Why did you put this shape on this club? You know, learning all the different ins and outs of the design from the engineers to show my passion to really get pushed and say, you know, I want to learn this. I this is this is my goal. This is my next step. And the first project I was given was in 2006. So I was about two and a half years into my tenure at, at Mizuno when I was first allowed to design a putter and a fitting tool. So it's kind of funny that you developed a putter because they don't really uh, – was that – was Mizuno selling putters in the U.S. at that time? You know, it's funny. The putter I designed – when people think of Mizuno, when you sit back and look at Mizuno, it's – we're known for the beauty of our clubs and, you know, the, the history and the, pro, the putter that I designed, I worked on. It basically is a slap in the face of having the Mizuno name on it. It is so <laughs> – it is so ugly. It's called the Drano series, which on top of that, worst name you could what, put on a what series is of it with Mizuno and just ridiculous club names that nobody knows about. <laughs> you know, that's, it's part of what we do. It's, it's in our blood. <laughs> it's a, an extension of the Donkey Shovel series right there, right? That's exactly right. So to really round out your short game, the, the Donkey <laughs> Shovel and the Drano. <laughs> but the whole concept behind it was, you know, basically we were myself and another uh, budding engineer at the time were basically told, hey, make the highest moment of inertia putter you can make. And that was at the, it was right at the same time when Ping had the Dock 17 and you know there were those ridiculously oversized putters oh, out. Like satellite antennas. You can mount them on the side of your house. That's exactly right. And our goal was to make one that had an MOI that kept up with that, but that actually looked like a golf club. And uh, we we <laughs> We uh, were successful on one of those aspects where the MOI was extremely high. It wasn't nearly the size of it, but it was a really nice multi-material design. It had an aluminum front. It had composite, we'll call it tubes in the back. And then it had a, a heavy stainless steel piece on the back that really increased the moment of inertia a lot. So even though it looked like something that came out of a, you know, the back of a plumber's truck, to, it was suitable to the Drano name, it... Uh, <laughs> It was not. It didn't look the part, but it was cool because I was able to engineer something. So, what was what was the first thing you designed for Mizuno from the iron lineup? Like, you know, Chris's first Mizuno iron that uh, that our that our listeners would recognize. 
Yeah, the first Mizuno iron I got to design was the MP57. It was a set of irons. It was a mid-size player's cavity back. It was right after, you know, I'll never forget when I entered R&D. The first thing I saw when I walked in the door was a, a brand new set of MP32s. And that was about six months before they launched. So that was the introduction of the cut muscle line. And, you know, we had a really good success with that line. The 32 was a beautiful, classic golf club. And then after that, the 60 came. And then after that, it was the 67. So the fourth generation that was being developed since I started was when I was allowed to, I, I wouldn't say take the helm or take the wheel, but I was allowed to mess around and be a part of the development of the MP60, or sorry, the MP57. They, they let you drive the bumper car, right? Is that? <laughs> I think that's right. The, the cool thing about Mizuno is there's a team that makes sure you're not going to mess up. Like, you know, there's so many people that I wouldn't say are looking over your shoulder, but, you know, they're they're making sure that, especially on a Mizuno iron, there are so many things that, so many people and hands it has to pass through that we're not going to put out an ugly-looking iron. So that, that's a... That's a... That's a good transition point. Uh, we should mention, though, you're not designing irons anymore, right? You are now the brand manager. Is that correct? That's correct. My, my, my title is it's an ever-flowing, changing title. I'm somewhere between brand manager, which was the title that was given to me uh, about a year ago when I officially left R&D, but it's somewhat morphed into product manager. So I've, I've kind of taken the reins as the guy who's working with the R&D team, working with the supply chain side to really say, this is the product we need to market. This is why we need it and really help drive the R&D team as well as a lot of you know, what we look like to the outside world. So trying to drive the, the direction of all the product. So along those lines, what do you think it is, if you had to kind of sum it up briefly, briefly what is it that Mizuno does that separates it, would you say, from the rest of the, the equipment industry? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, the first thing I'd, I'll talk about that Mizuno does that separates us are our materials and our processes. You know, we, we make it a point to overspend on product. And I know from a business side, overspending is never a good thing. But what I mean is that we spare no expenses on the product side. If the head cost is higher, but we see some sort of measurable difference, we're going to put that into it. You know, we're okay with making slightly lower margins just because we know that if the player gets a club that's going to perform well, we're okay with that. So I think the biggest thing we do is really focus on the materials we use, whether that's the Grainflow Forge 1025E, whether that's the chromoly material, P700 on our woods, or the processes, the Grainflow Forging is, and the Grainflow Forging HD being the key process that we're known for. I think those are the biggest things that we do different than the industry. So would you say like, I mean, you see all the ads, you know all the claims that, that your competitors are making, and, and I would imagine you take a lot of that product in-house, rip it apart, play with it, and see what's real. So as, as far as what goes on in the marketplace, is there anything out there that just continually makes your, make you shake your head and be like, Jesus, you know, what is it? How can they get away with this? You know, the, it's, the distance claims are the thing that always just drives me nuts, where, yes, clubs go longer now than they did before, a little bit of that's from the technology. A lot of that's from specology, as we like to call it. You know, people making clubs longer, lighter, stronger, just a lot of crazy things. So the industry really is frustrating in terms of 
how they act like distance is all that matters, particularly when you're talking irons. On wood, I totally understand distance is what matters on a driver. The point of that club is to get you as far down the fairway as possible. But on irons, consistency is what matters on an iron. The fact that you hit your seven iron like your old six iron just means that you need another club that to hit where your pitching wedge used to go that now goes where your nine iron goes. The whole point of that, those clubs are consistency and predictability. And as soon as you start you know, touting distance and then you start seeing shallow landing angles and all these things that just equate to not as close to the hole as consistently, then you're really being... You're doing a detriment to your game. Right. It's really, I mean, we've talked about this before. There are certainly some some cases where it appears that the, the club is designed to perform on a launch monitor, but not necessarily on any in any practical sense, help you score well on a golf course. That's exactly right. And that's such a frustrating thing because, sadly, the launch monitor is the easiest place to convince somebody they need a new golf club. Because, you know, you're right there. There's a number right in front of you. And you're like, man, wouldn't you love to hit it this much further? Yes, but at the same time, if you step, take a step back and think about it, that is not the point of that club in your hand. <laughs> so that brings me to, you know, I'm going to jump ahead here. Um, well, actually, you know, before we jump ahead, give me give me something positive, like within the industry, somebody else's project uh, product that you've looked at and said, man, that's uh, that's really cool. I wish that had a Mizuno logo on it. Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I always like questions like that because we have that debate inside of, you know, what would you play if you didn't work here or if Mizuno wasn't a thing? So what's out in the in the uh, market right now? Let me think. So I've always liked I've always liked Titleist's head shapes on clubs. I think they do a really good job on their irons in terms of looking good at a dress. So, you know, if I had to pick a set of irons that wasn't one of ours, I would probably pick something out of the Titleist line, particularly like the AP2 line, I think has done a really good job. It looks cool. It feels good. You know, it's got a lot going for it. On the wood side, um, let's see. That's, that's, a, that's a bit of a trickier one. I'm not sure which one, just because... Well, the funny thing about me being an R&D and having access to a ton of stuff is that I'm not a tinkerer at all. I know my distances. I know my lengths. And I'm not looking to change anything. So, you know, it's 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 tough to say outside of my current JPX 900 driver, which one I'd be playing right now. Yeah, so it's interesting you mentioned the woods because, you know, I've, I've referenced it uh, quite a bit lately. But there's a video of you. I'm not sure when you guys shot it. I don't believe it was that long ago, but you talk about some of the stuff that's in your bag. Yep. And you have this this three wood that, <laughs> um, <laughs> knowing you as a better player and, and knowing you can hit the ball, and then seeing that like you have this was is a JPX EZ. Is that correct? Uh, I've got a JPX EZ hybrid, and I've actually got an MX 700 uh, three okay. wood, which I believe that club goes back. I think it's 11, 11, 10 or eleven years old. Yeah, that was before JPX even came to the U.S. So it's funny. I got guys internally who are always busting my chops, saying that you know playing with me is like playing with the 2005 golf catalog. So. <laughs> <laughs> Now, do you uh, the stuff that goes in your bag, or you know, like you said, you don't tend to tinker, but but when you do, do you do a lot of self-fitting, or do you work with some of the fitters uh, and try and get like a, a second set of eyes on it? You know, it's it's a little bit of both. You know, it's got to look right, it's got to feel right, and then I'll look at a lot of numbers. Um, I am a 
a TrackMan guy. I'll get on there and look at the numbers, particularly on the wood side. I know where I want my spin rates to be. I know where I want my launch angles to be. And the the typical progression of a club working into my bag is I'll test it on the range, maybe two or three different sessions, comparing it with my gamer and then on its own. And then I'll take it out to to play nine holes with. And it's funny. It's It feels like, particularly on the three-wood side, it's like I keep taking ones out that work on the range. And then there'll be a shot that I just don't know exactly what it's going to do. So, for example, you know, if you're, if you're on the range, you're always just hitting straight down the middle. You're always just trying to trying to keep it in play and look at the the normal numbers as opposed to hit a little cut, the little draw, hit a high one or whatever like that. So when it gets on the course, is truly the, the big test. And usually, you know, I'll ask my playing partners who I've got a pretty regular group I play with. I'm like, now, what would you think of that three wood I hit back there? What would you think of that? Did that look right? Did that did that seem like my normal flight? And from there, it's got to it's got to pass a couple different tests before it actually stays in the bag. So you've got you've got this three wood that's effectively older than my third grader plus a handful of years. So, I mean, how often as a guy who who you know churns out golf clubs on I guess what most of our readers would say is a, a more responsible release cycle than a fair amount of the industry, um, right? How often do you you think the typical golfer should be looking to to replace clubs and put something new in the bag? That's a great question. You know, it, it depends on what you're looking to do with your clubs. You know, on, on the wedge side, if you're a practicer, if you hit a lot of golf balls and your wedges start to wear out, there's definitely benefit to having new wedge with fresh grooves in the bag. You know, I, I change out my wedges probably twice a year, but typically it's, you know, I'll change them with a new head of the same one I already had. I'm not looking for a drastic rechange just because I want to know what they're going to do. So again, it, it depends on how often you play on your wedges. But I mean, I think yearly, if you're if you're somewhat of an avid player, I think is a good thing on your wedges. Irons, it's all about are they delivering what you think they should? Can you hit those consistent distances? If you can, then, you know, if there's something it doesn't do right, you know, your long irons don't travel as high. The biggest thing, the key thing is the fitting of it. If they're fit well, you don't need to change that often. Um, on the wood side, I feel like there there have been a couple more advances, a little bit more distance. And if you haven't had a new wood in the past, call it three years, four years, it's worth looking at. But by no means do I think everybody needs to go, you know, every year this thing is you know, 30% better than the one before it. You know, I think it's it's an iterative process every year. So the longer it's been, the more likely you should change. But if you just bought new stuff last year, I know it's against the industry to say it but you probably don't need to buy the new stuff this year well well part of uh, part of getting average golfers to to buy that new stuff regardless of how often you, you really <laughs> want them to do it is is the tour validation um and getting, right. getting your product in play on tour um you know i think it's fair to say that that hasn't been a strength of mizuno uh would you agree with that at least in recent years yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, we we've taken a somewhat hands-off approach to tour over the last call it decade. So, and you've got a guy out there, you probably can't say his name, but he's, he's <laughs> won three majors in the last uh was probably 19 months now uh with right with JPX 900 tours in the bag. Uh how important do you think it is moving forward for you to be able to get a guy like that or somebody with, you know, a, a top 10 or a top 25 player? To, to not only put your stuff in his bag, but you know, do it on a contractual basis so that you can let the world know that, hey, yeah, our stuff is, is good enough to be played by the best in the world. 
you know, it's it's becoming more and more valuable and more and more important. And that's why you're starting to see us really look at the tour a lot heavier than we used to. You know, it, it became such a pay for play game over the last decade that that's really why we took a more conservative approach with putting more money into the product as opposed to the tour. But as websites like your own, like Golf Spy, have come out where I feel like the the consumer is so much more knowledgeable now. Just having a tailor-made hat on doesn't necessarily mean you have a full bag of tailor-mades, which the average consumer, especially five years ago, didn't realize that. And now they're really starting to realize, you know, you got a swoosh on your hat. You could have whatever you want in your bag. So as a result of that, you know, the fact that the world is so much smaller and it's like – it's easy to get an inside look into somebody's bag now. That's really where the validation can come in, where it feels more authentic, more true, that players are choosing to play the best stuff, not necessarily take the most money. So that's why you've seen us from our side at Mizuno really emphasize making sure we get our clubs into the players' hands and give them the opportunity to swing our stuff. Because more than ever, there are people who are free to play whatever they want, and that's done nothing but help companies like ours. And where you guys haven't been strong in, in quite a while is really with the Metalwoods on play, uh, or on tour, rather. And mm-hmm. It's interesting. So I got an email from your colleague in Europe, Darren Matthews, just a, just a couple of days ago. Um, yeah. I was hoping you can kind of fill in and clarify for me some of what he was talking about. So the things he said was that you guys were, and I think this probably impacts your, your tour use as well, but you guys were a year late with a 460cc driver. And the other thing <laughs> that, was, that was kind of a real teaser for me says on a couple of occasions you were cu- uh, on the cusp of something really big mm-hmm. and you pulled back from it. So can you kind of talk about what that means and what's real and, and, and what you, I guess, in hindsight would have liked to have done differently? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Mizuno, we are a team of engineers first, which is something that I really appreciate about the company. I mean, myself as the guy who's helping to push the direction of the product comes directly from the product engineering side. So with that being said, in everything we do, we're trying to push the limits of the engineering. So just looking back at some of the history of Mizuno, we were the first ones to to create a titanium driver. We were the first one to get graphite shafts in play on tour. We were the first ones to do composite crowns. We were the first one to do sliding weights. You know, a lot of these things that have become, you know, AC in a car to drivers on tour right now. But ultimately, because we never pushed a ton on the marketing side, it's almost like our our innovation slid under the radar. So for a long time, we would we would put these nice innovations into clubs and just wouldn't speak about it a ton. And ultimately, we got to a point, particularly when the golf market struggled in 2008, 2009, that we took a little bit more of a conservative approach in terms of even the development of the woods, where we backed off on some of the technologies just because the market became so price sensitive you know it went from $500 drivers to 299 drivers and we felt we fell victim to that and as a result we didn't really push the envelope in terms of the development on the wood side like we should have and that's where you know other companies continued to have the price point drivers but at the same time would have a high end driver they pushed out on tour and that's where we really lost a lot of our steam in terms of our momentum out there so what you've seen over the last little bit is R&D basically asked, and I'll say asked, pled a couple of years ago, can we 
just take the handcuffs off with the driver. You know, I know the price point's the price point, but ultimately with Mizuno, we're not trying to be the biggest. We're going to buy this many drivers and we're going to sell that many drivers. Every year we sell out, even though we're not at a big market share. So if we're going to sell out, I would much rather us sell out of a club that we're super proud of than sell out of a club that we'd hit a price point on. So starting with the JPX 850, which is probably about four years ago, that was the first time that R&D was able to really just make the best of the best. And I know you guys did a great test where you where you broke down all the different drivers and you looked at what had the lowest sweet spot, the lowest uh, center of gravity to the ground, which ultimately results in the lowest spin. And the 850 blew away the competition. It was definitely a low CG club, no doubt about it. <laughs> Absolutely. It was ahead of its time. You know, it was it was the the SLDR before the SLDR came out, which is the shallow center of gravity, super low spin. You know, from there, we're trying to build upon that that foundation to create our clubs now. So with that, we had the JPX 900 after that, which took all the adjustability to a whole nother level. This year, we had the ST and the GT 180 drivers. And then coming up shortly, you'll see some new stuff from us that we are we couldn't be more excited about. And just to give you a little teaser, you know, we just had our first tour testing with them last week. I say last week. What day is it? Two days ago, we had our first tour test. (laughs) Some of our guys from R&D went down and met with a couple tour players. And in both instances we tested, we blew their drivers out of the water. And I'll I'll say one was a ping, one was a tailor-made, and we beat both of them handily. So what I think you're going to start to see is a resurgence of Mizuno, not only irons on tour, but also woods on tour, which is awesome for us. How, how confident are you that you're going to be able to get a, a, a you know, one or two at least, right? I mean, at this point, putting a, yep. a single Mizuno driver in the hands of somebody that the world knows on tour mm-hmm. would be huge. So are, are you reasonably confident you're going to be able to do that? I am reasonably confident. It's funny how the, the biggest barrier we battle is that reputations don't just live in the market. They live on tour as well. So it's like, you know... If, it takes a special person to say, well, I'll be the guy who plays this one that nobody else is playing. You know, it takes a level of trust and really trust in us and trust in the product. But there are guys out there who you prove them with the numbers and you can get those guys get them to go into play. So I'm fairly confident with the with the product we have coming out that we're going to you're going to see some different stuff from us. That's cool. I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'm sure the listeners slash readers will be as well. But before we get there, we have some new stuff on the market, right? JPX 919 irons have been yes. on, what, probably, what, two, three weeks at retail at this point? That's right. I think, that, so. I think it was about two weeks ago they first hit the shelves. Yeah, so going back to that video I referenced earlier, right, with your your three wood, there's something else mm-hmm. you say in that video where you, you, you know, something along the lines of with with every new product, there's something that could be better, right? Right. No guarantees that it is, but it, it could be. There's the potential for it to improve on what what is already in the bag. So with the 919 series, what is it that could be better? So there were a lot of things we tried to do. And, and some individual to each iron, but some specifics just to the overall 919 line. The first thing, just to speak to the line in general, is we wanted to make the JPX 919, this is going to sound kind of cliche, but we wanted to make it even more Mizuno. You know, we've always been known for the classic, the clean, the sophisticated. And even though this is a JPX, when you take a look at it, 
it's all chrome. There's no paint all over it. I mean, it's the most beautiful set of JPX irons we've ever put out. So, you know, with the, I'll speak to the hot metal in, in particular, where that, that type of club from us, from if you go back two, three generations, had big, ugly badges, bright colors, all those things that, did, that weren't Mizuno. JPX so, easy. <laughs> you don't kick a man while he's down. <laughs> No, but but to your point, yes, you know that was a golf club that performed great, engineered great, but it was not a Mizuno. You know that was Mizuno making a ping, and if you want to buy a ping, you don't buy a Mizuno ping, you buy a ping ping. Like it just makes sense. So we wanted to really speak to our customer, but outside of that, we know it's a beautiful golf club, so we feel like it'll speak to it'll definitely speak to our guy, but it'll also speak to the guy who's looking for something a little bit different in the market. So with the whole nine one nine line, we tried to make everything more Mizuno, more sophisticated, thinner soles, more more aspirational look from behind. And then to go into each of the irons specifically, you know, with the hot metal, we saw an opportunity to make it launch a little bit easier. With that easier launch, that's higher landing angles, that's easier to fit, and it's a more, as I talked about earlier, it's a golf club that's going to play better on a golf course versus on a driving range. Um, on the JPX Forged, the big thing we wanted to do there is see if we can't increase the launch, but also get a bit more distance out of it as well by increasing the COR. So we increased the launch with a new milling technique across the back that brought the center of gravity deeper. But ultimately, what's funny is we increased the COR with a new milling technique, but we even took lofts backwards. We went weaker in lofts compared to the previous, which the industry doesn't really do. No, you unjack them. <laughs> That's exactly right. But the point is, we wanted to make sure they can fit the proper player, and we wanted to make sure you could custom fit them across the line. So now you could combine a set of hot metals with Forged if you want to, or even a set of Forged with the Tours. With the Tours, the big thing with those is we wanted to make them thinner, more clean, and feel better. So a new HD forging process in there, and just a super clean, super sophisticated look. So we've got we've got three new irons. Yep. Two of them are forged, but only one is available in left-handed. So it's a it's a question that comes up <laughs> quite a bit. Um, let's just put it out yep. there. Why does Mizuno hate left-handed golfers? I wouldn't say we hate left-handed golfers. It's that we don't. Let me think how to gently word this. <laughs> we don't hate left-handed golfers. We love left-handed golfers. What we want to do is we want to try to hit as much of the left-handed market as we can, but at the same time do so without overcharging and just really, you know, doing good business. I mean, I you know, people get so passionate about golf companies they sometimes forget their their businesses. They got to turn a bottom line. So I hate to turn it to that, but um, you know, with the forging, the processes we use, the number of molds we have to cut from A weight, B weight, three iron, four iron, five iron, down to pitching wedge, multiple molds at you know at tens of thousands of dollars in just mold costs alone. And that's 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 multiple molds for every iron in the set, right? It's not just one. It's not like there's just a a seven iron mold and we're done, right? That's exactly right. You know, you have to cut those molds for each of the different irons. You have to cut them for each of the different head weights because we believe in fitting. So you have to make sure you have that. And then it's not just one mold per iron. There's an upper mold and a bottom mold. And ultimately, by forging those, you got to sell a lot of sets to be able to amortize the cost of that mold. So you know, it's I know it's a business answer to it, but. The left-handed market is a fraction of the market. We're a we're a uh, well, a decent market share, but not a huge market share. But ultimately, 
especially when you get into like the better players on the MP side. You're talking left-handed is a fraction of the market. The MP side is a fraction of that fraction. And ultimately, the numbers make it very tough to justify making money with it. So it's like you have two options. You don't make it, which pisses off lefties, or you charge lefties more than righties, which really pisses off lefties. So it's like we got to choose the lesser of two evils. I, I know it's not a great answer, but we're always sitting down. It's funny how often the left-handed discussion comes up of how can we fix this? How can we do better things for them? And what I will say is we've got some ideas and some things floating around that we think the lefties will be less mad at us going forward. But we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can we can we put some rough numbers on this? I mean, so what? Sure. Take take a take an iron. I guess that if you start with the the MP18 proper, your your muscle back design, or yep. or the JPX forged toy, which are, you know, not not quite to the level of absolutely for the the most elite ball strikers out there, but it's it's a yep. small iron, uh, for for a especially if you're talking about a guy who buys a full set. Yep. It's definitely your your top tier better player so so what right. percent of the market do irons in that category generally generally represent yeah so to put some that's a great question a great way to break it down just in a simple form you know typically the better players the shallow cavity down to the blade that makes up about three percent of the overall golf market and within that three percent mizuno has the MP18 muscle back, we have the MP18 split cavity, we have the MP18 MMC, and we have the JPX 919 Tour. So we've got four models within 3% of the industry. And not only that, you know, it's four expensive models there. So ultimately, the question gets to if we just make the SC and we just make, call it the 919 forged in, forward, in, in uh, left handed, if we were to then make the MMC, are we adding customers or are we dividing our customers? And you know, ultimately, you just have to make that – You have to. it's a tricky game to battle of what's the right thing to offer and what do you get out there just to make sure that you know, we're serving the market. But at the same time, we're being, we're being responsible business-wise. So it's, it's really about trying to, to manage the costs and, and understand what, what's viable when your market is 10% of 3% really, right? That's right. I mean, that's why when you see when you get into the higher handicap stuff or the, the slightly larger golf clubs, the hot metal club has always come in right hand and left hand. The forged model in the JPX line has always come in right hand and left hand. Every year we've made at least one of the MPs in left hand as well. Typically, it's been the, uh, the higher handicapper one just because that's the one that reaches the bulk of the market. Ultimately, to to justify the molds, you got to sell that that many, and it's a lot easier to sell that many to speak to uh, to a bigger percentage of the market. So, you know, I don't expect you to tell us exactly how much your molds cost, but to kinda, <laughs> to uh, to kind of put it in perspective, what what is and what's what's the order of magnitude difference between say molds for a fully cast set and and molds for a for a fully forged set? Like what's you know, I'd easily mold, put it at 2X, a ten x. I'd put it at a ten x. So we're talking just a, I mean that's that's a massive difference when you consider right uh, what these actually the prices are on these things. So I, I can see where that's that exactly ends up right in a hurry. So especially <laughs> like as you said, you're doing a weights, you're doing b weights, and you've got right upwards of you know most cases at least two molds per iron per weight right. right correct that's right 
Woo. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess I, hopefully that, that helps explain it to people that it isn't just a case of you've just decided, you know, screw Canada, who needs them. And, uh, and that's just it. Is And, you know, we battle that whenever. It's funny. We had a couple of guys in customer service who work here who are lefties. And, you know, we, we talk the talk and we try we try to explain it as best we can. That being said, we don't want to always take the, the thing of, oh, well, the, the money doesn't justify it. We're working up clever solutions to work around that. And ultimately, if people buy more Mizunos, we're going to make more lefties. It's that simple. <laughs> cool. So before I let you go, I wanted to uh, see if we can get you to, to tease us a little bit more on, on what's coming up from Mizuno. What can we expect? Because, you know, there is... In addition to the lack of left-handed clubs, right, there is an entire <laughs> catalog of really cool stuff. There's apparel, shoes, putters, golf balls, all this stuff that you can't get in the USA. So, mm -hmm. I mean, what the hell, man? Are we going to see any of this? <laughs> you know, that's that's a great question, one that I can't fully answer. But what I will say is that part of our structure right now and part of our leadership and our whole direction is we want to become more – of a global company as opposed to a Mizuno that runs one way in Japan, one way in Europe, one way in the States. So what we want to do is we want to try to get a lot more a lot more aligned globally. So that that speaks to not only our marketing, the messages we tell, the, the players that we sign, how our how our website looks, how we tweet, like you know, silly things like that. But ultimately, the product line needs to needs to speak that way as as well. So what you will see from us going forward is you know more more emphasis on the woods, a big push there, and ultimately, I wouldn't be surprised to see some new categories from us. You know, I'm not saying it's happening right. Right away, but some of these might be uh, a little bit further down the road. But you will see Mizuno become more of a. What we want to do is we want to be a golfer's brand. So I guess along the those lines, last question for you: golfer's brand. You want to be in front of golfers, in front of the industry. So, is uh, is 2019 is January 2019 when we see Mizuno return to the PGA show? Whew, that's a great question, and that's one that we're discussing. Literally, I had a meeting about that this morning. There will definitely be some people from Mizuno there. The question is, will there be five people from Mizuno, or will there be 50 people from Mizuno? And we're not quite sure that answer yet, but I think uh, you stop by, and there'll be, there'll be some sort of Mizuno presence and voice there, for sure. Awesome. Stay tuned. And Chris, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. <laughs> Tony, I always appreciate it. Thanks for giving me the voice, and uh, thanks for letting us talk. Awesome. We'll do it again soon. Definitely. Thanks for joining us for Episode 1. Episode 2 is in the works and hopefully coming soon. Until then, please let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover, any very special guests you want to hear from, people you want us to invite on the show. Leave a comment, reach out, let us know, and we'll do our best to make it happen. <laughs>